types episode 20 part two part two <laughs> attempt attempt to i should say so we are actually recording live um yeah we're both looking at the the, the microphone making sure that that we're actually recording we we actually went through in a half an hour long non uh intentional practice yesterday rehearsal rehearsal uh for this podcast so it actually should be better because we went we trolled ourselves into rehearsing by talking about how you need to rehearse last time on the presentation episode yeah exactly but this is the first time we're actually recording in person we're calling it the because we're in the same place at the same time episode recording from the lovely hampton inn and suites at uh silver spring we're both at ruby nation speaking this weekend uh, Mike talked yesterday about Idris and Ruby compilers, or like I guess compiling to Ruby from Idris, and I talked about uh, Ruby performance today. Uh, you were just listening to a song by Ashra Temple, or uh, later known as Ashra, by a song called Sun Rain. Really cool band from the 60s and 70s and then the 80s and 90s, but their, that song was I think was 72, 73, and they were one of these groups that came out of Germany and uh, Europe that were kind of doing, you know, straightforward psychedelic rock and then eventually merged into this like very weird experimental electronic music, early electronic music and definitely albums worth checking out if you want to go on a bliss vibe trip like I was doing last week. So anyway, how you doing, MRV? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to have a bunch of nerds in my territory for the conference and... Uh... I live uh, close by to where the conference is now, so it's it was a nice, uh, my family dropped me off this morning and that was cool. And uh, yeah, having a nice time. It's good to have you folks in town and uh, summer's starting to get real hot down here in DC. Uh, Aaron took a stroll through the Silver Spring Farmer's Market <laughs> and did. got jealous of our uh, Southern, southern <laughs> produce. There's some amazing uh, cherry tomatoes and stuff and there was one of the stands just had like an array of like buckets of tomatoes and they were just like taste until you find what you like and I was just standing there dumping cherry tomatoes in my mouth um until I like one exploded all over myself and the person standing next to me which is how cherry tomatoes um but and she the woman actually turned to me and said was it worth it (laughs) (laughs) it? yeah it was it was worth it it was really good yeah so anyway you were uh telling me about this awesome meal that you had recently and how it kind of shifted your expectations about some food right so uh we were talking yesterday um about uh some sort of like a mini topics that we could discuss on this show because uh you know we knew we wanted to record and just figured we'd figure out something to talk about and one of the things that i wanted to talk about was this like uh, um food dogmas and uh breaking your own rules about what you eat Uh, and trying new things. And this is inspired by a recent meal that I had at a restaurant um, on Capitol Hill down here called Rose's Luxury, which is uh, a restaurant that won the Bon Appetit 2014 Restaurant of the Year uh, and uh, is quickly sort of appearing on people's lists for best one of the best restaurants in the country. Uh, And it's a very casual, a uh, really cute little restaurant um, in one of the fancier neighborhoods in D.C., uh, so, but it still maintains a casual vibe and it's very reasonable cost-wise for the quality of food that you get. And the thing that I experienced there is like my favorite kind of uh, experience to have at a restaurant, which is like trying new 
flavor combinations. Um, and the tricky thing about flavor combinations that you might not be familiar with is, I think, balance. Um, and how this ties into the food dogma idea is that I usually say uh, that I don't really like uh, fruit uh, fruit in my savory food. So I don't really like like salads with like craisins in them or chicken salad with grapes in it or I mean apples is okay sometimes with stuff but and of course there's exceptions to this rule but I don't normally pursue something like that and typically when I would if I saw something like what I'm about to describe I would assume it was pretty gimmicky uh, and would also assume that it wouldn't be pulled off very well but we were at this restaurant, we had all reason to believe that all the food on the menu is very well executed, and there was a strawberry pasta dish on the menu, which was a spaghetti with a sauce that's 60% tomatoes and 40% strawberries, uh, and like a big dollop of a homemade ricotta cheese and some chili flakes and other stuff. And the thing about the dish was that it came highly recommended by the, by the uh, person that was serving us, uh, and I just had heard that this restaurant was really good. So we're like, my wife and I were like, okay, let's try it. And uh, I tried it and it definitely exceeded my expectations. And the reason, uh, the reason I think it was so fantastic was because it did strike that perfect balance. So each bite had this sweet component uh, and an acidic component and a savory component and a spicy component and the texture was right. And in the wrong hands, this would have been a complete nightmare disaster of a dish. Um, someone remarked that it sounded like something that would come up on like chopped as like a cha as like a dare. Uh, and there I think ten ingredients that don't you don't think would go well together. Exactly. Add um, some corn chips to this or something. Right. But they nailed it. I mean, and and uh, I think the and uh, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday in, in uh, episode number twenty, take number one. <laughs> the way that I could tell that this balance is perfect is that as I was eating it. Uh, and I'm making the like shoveling food into my mouth motion <laughs> while I'm saying that. Um, while I was eating it, it kept kind of like crisscrossing back and forth in my brain between like, this is sweet, this is savory, this is spicy, this is like creamy, this is like cooling. It was like a really, really interesting thing. So that was really cool. One other thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention to you about the restaurant is that they're one of, it's one of those restaurants where they, they tell you how to eat certain dishes oh, you know what i mean yeah, yeah. where they like serve it and there's like a nice presentation or whatever and then they're like okay eat it like this and so one of those dishes was uh, a dish that got them really famous which is like a oh actually this has fruit in it too now that i think about it but it seemed less weird but i don't know why <laughs> um it's a sausage it's like a spicy sausage salad thing that has lychees in it uh, when I say salad, I mean salad like in the Thai sense. Like so it was larb. almost like a larb, yeah. yeah. So it was almost like a larb, and it came in this like really beautiful ceramic bowl uh, that was like uh, not very wide but deep, and it had all the components in there. And they're like, yeah, get in there with a spoon and mix it all up. Like and, a bibimbap or something. Yeah, and then eat it out of the thing. They're like, we really want you to eat it out of the bowl. Oh, cool. And, they, and so there were a couple dishes like that where they like kind of instructed you on, on how to prepare the, on how to like prepare it for your own consumption. There was this place, Burma Superstar in Oakland that actually, I think we there's one of the same. Yeah, we yeah, did go there together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think we probably got it because it's like their famous dish. They have this like Burmese tea leaf salad where it's similar. They like have like 30 different 
things arranged in like little squares on a plate and then a guy comes over to your table and like mixes it all up artfully and you're like i would not be able to mix it so well and but yeah similar probably a similar idea of like getting it all the little thing yeah it was it was it was fantastic that was a that was a great dish it had these like pickled shallots Uh in slivers uh, the spicy kind of Thai, somewhat funky sausage, lychees. Uh, it was, and it had, it had some kind of uh, maybe a little bit of yogurt or something. There was some kind of element to the sauce that thickened it a little bit, but I don't recall exactly what it was. That's cool. Um, but yeah, that broke one of my rule. That broke one of my rules about eating uh, sweet, like fruit-based, savory food. Uh, and then at, and then there was also the dessert component, and there were two vegetable-based desserts, one which was eggplant-based and one so which cool. is, like, uh, pea-based. And the eggplant dessert was, like, a eggplant tart tantan, like a apple tart, but with eggplant. And it was, like, really caramelly and similarly, and had ice cream and caramel on it. S- same thing when you eat it, and I'm making that shoveling motion again. <laughs> when you eat it... He's like, been making it nonstop. <laughs> my arm hurts. It's sweet. It's savory. It's earthy. It's like really cool. And the pea dish was just like light. It was like the spring. It was like the dessert version of like that perfect Union Square Cafe, like oh, yeah. pea salad. Like it's just fresh from the market. It actually had like pea, green, pea shoots all over the top of it, like blanketed it on top. So shout out to Rose's Luxury because you really broke some of my preconceived notions about execution and gimmick and whatever. It was just, you could really tell like in the wrong hand. Like if you just gave that recipe to someone, (laughs) this is a thing. This is like a, I think we should definitely go down this road because this was like an interesting thing that we were talking about. You know how obsessively they're like tasting the food while they're preparing the food, yeah. and they're like relying on that feedback during preparation to nail that balance perfectly. Because there's no way that you could do it, there's no recipe for making something like that that relies so much on balance that would not include like you must taste this a lot <laughs> during the preparation. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And yeah, I was thinking about it after we had that conversation yesterday, but there's there's this great video of Grant Ackett's, the chef at Alinea, talking about his process. I'll have to find a link to it. The way he kind of comes up with dishes, and he obviously a very different kind of end result probably from what Rose's Luxury food looks like to what like Grant Ackett's Alinea food looks like in terms of his is like super, super modern. And from what I've seen, theirs is modern, but a little more rustic. And, yeah, it's yeah. It, it looks like, like food. Yeah, There's nothing yeah, surprising yeah. really about it. But at the it. same time, he like, when he thinks about flavor, he has this crazy like kind of mind mapping thing that he does. Oh yeah, where fl- he actually, flavor bouncing. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. that what it's called? Is that what, what he calls, calls it? Yeah, yeah, where it's yeah. like, he, but the way he described it is basically like, you know, you have this one flavor like chocolate. And you're like, okay, what does chocolate go with? Okay, chocolate goes with like peanuts. Okay, you have peanuts. Okay, what does peanuts go with? Peanuts go, and you like go down this road of like things that that are related one after another to each other, but as a whole might not actually have ever been thought about as being related before, almost like a Markov chain of flavors. And uh, that's how he comes up with some of these dishes and some of these combinations that people have not really thought about. And they end up working because, you know, this does work with this and this works with this. Why wouldn't they all work together kind of? But it definitely, there's no way that, yeah, he doesn't experiment and taste and taste and taste until it, until it's, 
and his team until it until it actually works as a whole. Yeah, that's one of my favorite videos. We should definitely post that. It's really cool to see because if you do it, and I've done it a couple times, and if you watch the ones he's doing, it's cool too because you can like, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like if you go from like chocolate to cherries and then mm-hmm. cherries to almonds and then almonds to like maybe some, I don't know, whatever it is, parsley or something like that. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you think about like parsley and chocolate together and like he sets up these kinds of constraints and tries to like solve for like the right dish that would fulfill all of them. It's a really cool, it's a really cool process. Yeah. And that, uh, that f- the Flavor Bible, that book, have you seen that? Yes. Yeah. That they do, you can kind of achieve similar things from that where they have these like, they have these uh, kind of maps of flavors that go together and you can like jump around between them and see how they work. And I mean, there's very interesting science behind those things too. Oh. Uh, you know, things might go together because they share some compound, you know, in common. And, you know, that's like a weird component of what makes them actually mm-hmm. like work together. I, I've also, when you brought up La Rose's Luxury, I've been thinking about this book that I've been reading over the past uh, week or two that should I should have read a long time ago called Ideas in Food. And I've been following I've been following the Ideas in Food blog for a while now. It's uh, run by this couple, and they uh, are mainly interested in finding not just flavor combinations, but interesting ways uh, to use technology and modern techniques in a home and restaurant setting to kind of push forward things that you wouldn't think as you know good ideas are possible in the kitchen and also in the same way that harold mcgee does and some of the other people that we've talked about in the past like kind of dispel myths about like what you should and shouldn't do from like just science and and experimentation the book ideas and food is based around this really cool uh format where they're like here's an idea and here are some like kind of riffs on the idea as recipes but with like general descriptions so one of the ideas that they've been taught that um, that I've been reading about is like their vinegars idea. They have like a lot of, t- they talk a lot about vinegars and a lot about like, how do you make vinegars out of things that you wouldn't think to oh, make yeah. vinegars oh, out of? Right. I like, saw someone making like a Mountain Dew vinegar <laughs> that I think was based on one of those. Yeah, guys. yeah. yeah, yeah. They do, sense. they do like, a, they've written this other book called Maximum Flavor. They do like a maple syrup vinegar. Like, and how do you, breaking down kind of what the process is of making, vin- making vinegar and turning it into something maybe accessible for the home, but also just like, what do you actually need to do it and kind of work backwards from that and apply it to different things? Um, one of their, my favorite things that they ever did, which we, um, which I actually haven't ever tried at home, but I need to, is they realized that a lot of making ramen noodles is, at home is hard. And they realized that the reason people like ramen noodles or the reason ramen noodles are different than pasta is the alkaline nature of them, that they're basically like, um, they have some kind of alkaline solids in the dough that makes them stringy and uh, bouncy, but also contributes to the color and the flavor of what we consider the flavor of ramen noodles. And they realize that you don't have to start making ramen noodles. You could actually ramenize existing noodles by soaking them in a bath of like an alkaline solution, basically, which is just like, duh, of course you can, you know, this raw, uh, hard pasta will absorb liquid really readily. So why don't you just make that liquid sort of alkaline by adding baking soda to it, basically. And you've got these noodles that taste like ramen noodles, but started as like a $2 box of, uh, 
you know, angel hair pasta or something like that. So they, they approach food in a really interesting way. And I think that what we're, what we kind of were coming, coming to is this idea that, you know, approaching things from like a different perspective sometimes gives us new perspectives to, to look at food and other things. And this idea that all it takes is kind of stepping out of something and stepping out of your dogmas or your preconceptions of what, what it takes to like, to try something new basically it reminds me too of like the there's a woman that i follow on instagram who's like related involved in the mad feed stuff and she was posting this thing about these experiments she was doing with like chemical maillard reactions did you see that no they basically were able to like um produce without heat like uh the a bunch of the flavor compounds that are associated with needing heat yeah and so yeah yeah, like so i don't recall precisely right now what it was but they did basically these like taste tests uh and it was hard to distinguish between like things that were actually caramelized and things that actually were like chemically uh chemically simulating (laughs) chemically simulating that yeah it's really interesting i learned a lot about this kind of stuff when i was really into home brewing and beer making because um there's just some there are some styles of making beer that forever were considered essentially impossible to recreate outside of the areas where the beers were conceived Mm -hmm specifically like sour beer in Belgium. Uh, And American brewers have done a lot of really incredible work uh, to um, like isolate the various uh, bacteria and yeasts that are used to produce the flavors in these beers and are capable of kind of like, you can't, the fact is you can't just like fake it, right? Like you can't make, you can't take a beer that takes 10 years to make and make it in 90 days. Like you can make like an IPA in like 90 days. But what you can do is like get a lot closer and you can all, because you can, because basically because of aging. But you can do a lot of the stuff that happens pre-aging. Like you can accelerate that process and you can make the, uh, you can make the results repeatable. And that's kind of the whole game. That's like, you know, that's kind of like America's big contribution to like cuisine yeah. period. And like <laughs> the same is true of winemaking. Totally. Right? Like the U- University of California at Davis, they were the ones that invented the idea that you could use a device to test the amount of sugars that were left in grapes mm-hmm. uh, while they were still on the vine. And French vintners just used to like eat them. Yeah, yeah. Right? Which is like fine, but you know, whatever. Like that's not that's not very American to like try it. Like we like to measure things. Uh and it's, it was American brewers that figured out how to recreate a lot of these uh Brits, a lot yeah. of these just just you know, yeah, Britannomyces lactobacillus and and other ones. And it's really cool because sometimes the hacks are like obvious. They're like let's just cut up a barrel that was used to age the beer in Belgium, inoculate some of our beer with it, and then like measure the results and then, you know, see what happens and iterate on that and keep repeating it. Yeah. And there was actually, yeah, like I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a big beer blog, big, big homebrew beer blogger who ended up like going back to school and like learning a bunch of chemistry and did this thing where he like, you know, he's kind of reverse engineering a lot of these uh, agricultural products cool. uh, and trying to recreate them. So, you know, because from, you, you ferment beer guys too. Well, they do that stuff too. Yeah. But I'm saying like, you're fermenting meat right now, and it's a similar thing. Like totally. there's there's certain things you just can't fake. Certain things you can accelerate, and then there's other ones like you were telling me yesterday. There's a lot of similar things in brewing too, where there's like things you can do, but they 
can arguably produce an inferior product yeah. uh, at the trade at the you know as a trade off from like being able to do it more quickly or totally whatever. yeah or it's more like, consistently. It's it's about yeah it's about this like yeah the American ingenuity and all this stuff like if you go back the <clears> fact <throat> is so I, I so yeah I'm trying to cure some sausages in my uh, in my house and check out my Twitter you'll see a bunch of raspberry pictures of this raspberry pie connected to a fridge in my house so yeah i'm obviously trying to do it from a technical standpoint too but at the same time like when you think about it it's one of those things where it's like people have been doing this for centuries like literally centuries or maybe even millennia at this point and with much 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 less uh, information to build stable refrigeration like tools everything that goes into making a sausage uh, chemical compounds whatever it is like reliable sources of meat reliable sort like all of those things from the get-go anyone who's doing sausage or making beer or anything today has this huge leg up of being able to like stand on this historical base of knowledge that a lot of people didn't have you know uh, in reading uh, Michael Roman, who's another one of our favorite cookbook authors and food personalities, put out two books about uh, uh, charcuterie. One, the first one, charcuterie, is kind of like the Bible for any home sausage or bacon or uh, cured meat makers. And his newer one, Salumi, is uh, kind of more about the Italian side of things. And he talks a lot, and I've read actually a lot too outside of this, about like the Italian you know, salami tradition is like so steeped in this like almost magic and uh like just wisdom that they refuse to like let anything touch like these uh these practices that are literally just based on tradition and might have some of them obviously have very a lot of science behind them now at this point but they're all like no you know no chemical compounds no start starter cultures or anything it's all about the terroir and what they have in the space and that's why parma from prosciutto or prosciutto from parma is like the you know the best product in the world and you can't replicate that in america though people like loquercia and other people try but yeah it's really interesting because in going into this yeah you could there's so many things that i could have done and I might, maybe I should have done to like use these chemical compounds or whatever to like kickstart the process. But it's it's been interesting to be like, okay, I, I, I am using a lot of tools even to measure temperature and humidity and all this stuff already. What can I do to try to just like make this, find that balance like we've been talking about between using technology and making something that's like true or real or whatever. Did you read that? Uh, there was a really fantastic article going around the last month or so that was in uh, Jacobin Mag. Did you see it about this? Yeah. That, the food article? I did. It's a, it's a, there's a, it's based on a book. I really want to read the book. Um, I don't know how approachable it is, but essentially the thesis of this story is that there's like a false promise in this idea that we should return to like the way that people the artisanal use yeah that this artisanal that this like artisanal movement is essentially bullshit and that you know what you what we really should be focusing on is like a future where there is humane consistent and sustainable industrial practices applied to food production yeah, yeah. where like we don't really want to go back in time to where like Everyone's sausage a sharecropper and, yeah well not only that but like you know meat would meat could kill you yeah. you know it's like the wrong thing you would just die <laughs> there's an undeniable joy 
in producing things from scratch, mm -hmm. but that's not a scalable solution to a food, a food future. Yeah. That if we wanted to have, that there is an in-between, and this really, I mean, this is, it's a good, I'm glad, I'm glad we wound around to discuss, bringing this article up because I think it definitely applies to the like dogma thing that we were discussing earlier, where it's like more handmade and more slower is not always like better, yeah. right? And there's this big thing, like I'm sure, I'm sure I know that I've wondered this before or I've considered this idea before and I'm sure you and our like three audience members have considered it too, <laughs> but just the idea uh -huh. that, that, it's so, that it's just so, uh, you know, that, um, you that it's not approachable or affordable to eat this kind of artisanal yeah, food yeah. and that people that need nutritious sustainable access to food don't have it and mm -hmm. they are and they you know we end up with food deserts and places where you can't like buy fresh produce and this and that and the answer to that problem which is like the problem that like people don't eat properly the answer to that problem is not like everyone making their own pickles or whatever, right? <laughs> that there's an in-between that like there is a, just because our, just because our industrialized food system is so fucked up in the United States, doesn't mean that that's the only possible outcome for industrialized food, yeah. right? That there is this very real possibility. And actually I think like, I think beer production is a pretty good example of this, right? Like you, it's, it's we know, that you can build like a big sustainable company out of making like real beer and like make money and profit off of it. You know, like Samuel Adams is like real beer and they make a ton of beer. Lagunitas. Lagunitas. I mean, some of these companies make real, it's like actual beer, you know, unlike yeah. Budweiser, Coors and all these things where it's literally like extract yeah. uh, and it doesn't taste good and whatever. So I think that that, I mean, it, it's just a cool idea to think. Yeah, I, it really was like one of the most original pieces of thinking that I've seen around the intersection between like food and politics and e economics that I've seen usually, in years. Usually the conversation is super dogmatic about it in what we were saying. Like it's like either you're Michael Pollan on one side and you're like, oh, every, you know, there is only one path and it's these small sustainable farms and everyone should eat locally or it's the opposite side of like, well, yeah, I can't afford to eat any of this and I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A every day for lunch or whatever it is. Um, there was another related, I think it was a video and article that went along with it. I think it was on the Lucky Peach. I'll have to find it too, about this idea, similar similar idea, similar question of like, where are the middle-sized middle, middle -sized farms? Like right. there's this, you know, when we think about farmer's markets and versus, you know, farmer's markets versus the uh, you know Walmart or whatever like the farmers markets are the things that where we get these farms where these like you know each individual radish is handpicked and assembled in a twine bag and you know you get this whole thing versus the Walmart opposite end of the spectrum but actually the cost of producing and the amount that these small farms can produce is not is the reason that it's expensive or one of the reasons it's expensive and so different in price from these um, major industrial farming things is that it there is a huge cost of running this small operation versus like there should be some middle-sized thing where you can produce a lot of food, but it doesn't have to be so precious, basically. Uh, yeah, I hope that this will impact the way that people think about 
think about food, think about selling food, and that if there are people who are looking to like go into business selling food, producing food, that this is like the kind of thing that they think about. Because it's 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 myopic to say like okay I'm like I'm growing some radishes and I'm selling them like I'm yeah. done like you're not gonna like that's not a scalable thing it's <laughs> like your hobby that's fine yeah, yeah yeah right but if you want I think that if there are people out there and they're like okay I want to get into this that that's what you should be aiming for right like you need to aim past minimum viable farming right and like think about or food production whatever it is. It's a really interesting and new, compelling way of thinking about, okay, how can I do something that's sustainable and delicious and uh, as reasonably priced as possible because it leverages technology. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, pasteurization is like a helpful thing. If you're like selling, you want to sell like enough of something, like you have to make sure that the food, you, the food you're producing is going to make someone sick. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's some there's some in there basically the idea is that there's some middle ground where things can be relatively sustainable in terms of their impact on the earth and our economy and the you know the well-being of the people who consume the food but also large enough to actually feed a large amount of people and and in a good way and and consider flavor too you know like that's definitely part has to be part of oh, it yeah, you know for sure. Yeah. And there was a the Chef's Table show on HBO that was really good. Everyone should check it out. Um, but the episode with Dan Barber, like he talks a lot about how the difference between um, industrial farming and the small farming isn't necessarily just the amount they produce. It's like the small farming and how he's trying to work around the sustainable farming is growing things for flavor. Like you can grow things that are generally thought of as waste products but if you grow them in certain ways or think about them in certain ways there's actually ways to get valuable flavor and interesting culinary properties out of these what we normally consider as waste you know and he's talked a lot about that good talking yeah (laughs) (laughs) we should uh do this more often yeah yeah well we're gonna be around each we'll be in the same place next week too maybe we'll do another one yeah see how it goes um, thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to tweet at us, say hi, uh, send us some emails, tell us what you think about uh, what we're talking about and the music that we're exposing you to. And uh, <laughs> hope everyone has a great week. Peace.